Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Well, it's a great pleasure to be back with um, General Stuart Watson. Um, uh, It's a lovely sunny day outside uh, in December, and uh, we're continuing the conversation we had about his wartime career. And and last time, I think we got as as far as Market Garden, and and then you had to disappear off to a funeral memorial service, I think, Stuart. Um, but now um, we're going to go back to. We're just going. We'll, t- we'll touch back to Market Garden. You, you were behind the Irish Guards, weren't you? You, you? Had you been attached to Eight Farmer Brigade at this point? Yes, we were with, it, with Eight Farmer Brigade. The, the Irish Guards group led the, the advance up the main road to yes. Ironhoven, and we were sort of waiting while they got over the Earth Canal, and it was it was really from there that we went on. So, I mean, what can you remember of, of that time? You know, September 1944, you've, you've hurtled across Belgium and out of France and into Belgium and into, into Holland. I mean, it must have been a kind of slightly exhilarating time, wasn't it? Yes. Oh, yes, it was. It was amazing. Every now and then we got checked. Right. Because the Germans, every now and then, put out an anti-tank gun or something which held us up a bit. Right. But then, then we paused. We were based in Bergleopold before the advanced up the Eindhoven Road started. And we were just getting ready for that. And the, the, the Irish Guards had a bit of a struggle getting out. 
Right. Because the Germans fought pretty hard on the canal. Um, but eventually it gave way. But it wasn't all that quick, because trying to get a whole core of a, of a single rather narrow road with ditches on both sides mm. wasn't a very easy prospect. Yeah. I mean, did, did, you, did you find it... Can you remember the frustrations of that? I mean, did you think at the time this was, this was asking too much of you? Or no, did you th- just take it all in your stride? I think we came to the conclusion it was going to take quite a long time. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's sort of slightly proved to be the case, isn't it? <laughs> the case. I mean, in, in some ways, the idea of moving the whole core <clears throat> up that road was a bit fanciful. Uh, and, I mean, do, do you remember actually going into action during the Market Garden operation? Yes, I think, well, yes, I think we were certainly checked once or twice and had to sort of clear the way right. as, as we went up. Because the Germans resisted quite hard. Yeah. The striking thing about the last bit of the war really was how, how hard they did resist. Right. When almost anybody could have seen that the end game was in sight. Sure. But they never gave up. Well, I might, might come back to that in a minute if that's okay. But, yeah. but just, to, just to finish off with Market Garden. So, I mean, the, the, there's a realisation, isn't there, by kind of sort of fourth week of September that that it hasn't happened, that yes. you haven't had the decisive breakthrough. Can, yeah. can you remember that moment of realising, OK, this, we've oh, got a yes. bit longer? Well, it, yes, it, it sort of built up. It became clear that we weren't going to go as far as we wanted. We weren't going to get to Arnhem or anything like that. And getting out of Nijmegen up the road to Arnhem was obviously going to be extremely difficult. Yeah. And you're operating side by side with the 82nd Airborne. And, well, and they were there, and the 101st. Yeah. Um who are all extremely good. Well, I mean, when you, when you say they're extremely good, I mean, what, what makes them good, in your opinion? I mean, what, what is it? Is it, is it training, discipline, all, the, all of the above? Both, I think, yes. I mean, they, they were obviously high-class divisions, those two. Yes. Um, and they had good people, good commanders. It was an efficient affair. Uh, uh, did, was that something that you could just pick up immediately? I mean, did, were you practised enough by that stage to go, OK, this is a half-decent unit, this is a bit... What, what, what is it that, that defines, in your mind, a kind of a good, a good division as opposed to a not-so-good one? Well, they obviously knew what they were doing. Right. Um, and, and they were prepared to fight for it. And they, were all, they were fully engaged. Right. And they both had good commanders. Right. One was Ridgeway, wasn't it? Yeah. I can't remember the name of the other one. Gavin. Gavin, yeah. Um, and Maxwell Taylor was the 101st. That's right, yes. They were all there in their foxholes. Right. From the divisional commander downwards. Right. Quite unlike a British division. You never see a British divisional commander in a foxhole. Would Pro- you not? Probably. I mean, you might have died in the same situation. I don't know. The only time I remember actually seeing a, head, a brigade headquarters sort of dug in was in Normandy. Right. Where, where the brigade headquarters, which we were supporting, Brigadier was actually in a trench. Amazing. But you're right, I mean, you know... But you've got... Gavin, you've Gavin got, and Taylor were in their foxholes, weren't they? Yes, but that was the way they did it, and they all had tin hats and things. And you could immediately <coughs> see that they knew what they were doing. Right, you OK. You could feel it, really. Yeah, yeah. That they were efficient. Yeah. And by this stage, are you, are you personally in an, in an armoured car, in a scout car? Or yes, are you in, you're most, in a scout most, car? Of the time, most of the time, yeah. Yeah, rather yeah. than a Sherman. Yes. And then presumably after Market Garden, you're turning towards the Reichswald, aren't you? Yes, um, we, we, the last bit we had to do in Market Garden was with the 43rd Division. Yeah. Um, and they were 1-3 one, one, one Brigade. 
yeah. tasked with getting the airborne troops out, uh, back over the river. And, and we were on, on what they called the island right. at that stage uh, and, and, and sort of saw the evacuation of about, I think about 2,000 people who got back over the river. That was all. Yeah. But they, 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 the people who did the extraction, I thought, had done pretty well against, against the odds. The divisional commander didn't think so. Right. And, well, von and, Thomas. And, uh, yes, and had the brigade commander removed. Well, he was, he was known as a... Yes. Oh, yes. I mean, he was known as Butcher Thomas and von yes. Thomas after the yeah. German general. And, you know, he was, he was known to be extremely humorless. Yes. But he, um, the commander of one fair brigade, which is the brigade involved, was a chap called Walton, who was in the Warwickshire Regiment, <coughs> which of course was Monty's regiment. Mm. Anyway, he, he was taken away and uh, given another job, but he was, put, he was reinstated by Monty later on. Not in the same job, but he was reprieved, as it were. Mm. And, and, you know, after, I don't know how long we were on the island, I think a week. Right. Was it was it some sort of pretty hairy moments during that time? Was it a sort yes. of slightly confused situation? Yes, it was rather. I mean, there was a certain amount of shelling, and I think, of course, up at the sharp end you know, on the river, it was pretty unpleasant. Right. Where were you at that point? Well, we are. We were. I can't remember the name of the place, but it must have been two or three miles north of Nijmegen. Right. Yep. Um, that's that sort of thing. Right. Mm. So that so Market Garden draws to a close. Yeah. And then. You have this sort of long, sort of sticky period, don't you, where you're sort of battling away into the Reichswald and through the Reichswald and into yes, and into Germany. And and I mean, I know Eighth Armoured Brigade had some terrific fights in that period. Yes, there was an ex, there was an ex, uh, an, ex an operation called Blackcock. Mm. I think that's right. Which was over the New Year, and it was incredibly cold. Yes. And the roads were extremely slippery because they were all collided and the tanks slid about. Because, of course, the Shermans had rubber tracks. Yeah. Well, not rubber tracks, but rubber pads on the tracks. And that was pretty nasty. Um, I wasn't actually there at that stage because they just introduced a leave scheme. Right. And whether it went on leave or not was a question of drawing lots. <laughs> really? It started on the 1st of January, back leave to UK. Right. My name came out of the hat. So I was on leave from, I think, the 14th of January or something like that, for a fortnight. Wow. Which was a good idea. <laughs> yeah. So you missed the worst. So I the... missed Blackcock, which was the most desperate operation. And, and hard work and very slippery. I mean, it was amazing how awful the winters were during the Second World War. I mean, yes, just one after another in, yes, in they Europe. Were. They were just brutal. Yes. Incredibly wet, the autumn side of Christmas. Yes. Incredibly cold the following... Side yeah. of the new year. I mean, it was just a sort of uh, a sort of weird geological—is that the right word? No, meteorological pattern. <laughs> yes, um, it's extraordinary, really. Um, but but I mean, do you remember Christmas, nineteen forty-four? Oh yes, um, because it was the Ardennes offensive. That's right, and um, that was quite dramatic. I can't. We must be right. Yes, Christmas, and um, we we had been, we were sort of been pulled out of the line, as it were. Right. And the second in command had gone away into Holland to find sort of winter quarters. Right. The commanding officer and the adjutant had gone to Brussels. Um, so this, one of the squadron leaders was acting CEO and I was acting adjutant. And um, 
then the Germans attacked on the Ardennes offensive. Mm. I was billeted in a farm in a village called Eulestraten um, on the border. It was extremely comfortable. And one night, just after the beginning of the offensive, a liaison officer appeared from brigade headquarters in the middle of the night. And somebody came, I was sleeping upstairs in this farmhouse, and somebody came up, one of the soldiers came up and said, you're wanted downstairs by the liaison officer, who I knew well and was actually in the regiment. So I said, well, tell him to come up here. And he said, no, you've got to go downstairs. <laughs> and I went down, and that was the LO from Brigade, with a 250-hour map. You know, huge area. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, this is the situation. <clears throat> Here's the position. Yep. This is where the Germans have got to. Mm-hmm. Monty has been told to take charge of the northern side of the, <clears throat> the gap. Um, and you, you will be moving tonight to take over from the Guards Armour Division, who were actually in the line at that stage. Um, I don't know what the Guards were going to do, but they were taking them, taking them out and I think getting them ready for a counterattack or something. Um, anyhow, the CO and the adjutant and the sending mod all came back that day and we moved the following night into really what was the line, um, more or less on the German-Dutch border, I suppose it was. And we were there over Christmas. So Christmas was celebrated a bit later. Right. Um, And there was was snow on the ground and cold. And it was cold. And it was quite tense. I mean, you know, there was a feeling that the Germans were almost out of control, so to speak. Right. But however, Monte, as you know, took, took the, one of the um, American armies under his command, ninth, I think. Mm. And he stabilised the northern flank anyway. And then, and of course, the other thing was the weather was terrible. Yes. And the air, air force were more or less grounded. Yep. And it wasn't until the new year, really, that the air force were able to operate again. Right. And then when that got going and they stabilised it, and they won a first airborne, got, more or less got control of Bastogne. Um, it, but, I mean, you must have been dumbfounded, weren't you, when you all heard that the Germans had done this massive yeah, counterattack? Yeah, I mean, two armies. I mean, it's just extraordinary, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Bonkersly and, mad. And, but, we didn't, but, and, and the intelligence wasn't great. No. Well, I th- but I think you can understand why people would assume that the Germans are not going to be launching a mad, yeah. big offensive, because yeah. it, militarily it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. No. And, and the idea that they could assemble a couple of armies was... Outlandish. But it was a, a, a you know, massive last throw of the dice, wasn't oh, yes. it, from their point of view? Yes. It was a very considerable achievement yeah. from their point of view. It didn't come to anything, but it was... A, no. Yeah, mounting it was... So presumably you still had a pretty healthy regard for, for the opposition. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, that, the next bit up to the Rhine crossing, of course, vegetable and all that, later on in February, was a very hard battle. Yeah, and I'm sure... But just to go back to your leave, so did you, go ba- you, did you go back home? What did you do in your leave? Can you remember? I went home. If you, when you went home, you went by train and ferry yeah. from uh, the Hook, I think. You went by train to the Hook and then ferry to, uh, to Dover or somewhere. Yeah. So it must have taken a good old day or so well, just to get back. It took time, yes. Mm. Trains moved quite slowly anyway. But it was remarkable in a way to go on a fortnight's leave in the middle of battle. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And, and can you remember much about that leave? I mean, was it a... I mean, was it your sort of... I don't think anything very dramatic happened. I mean, I went home and saw the family and that sort yeah. of thing. 
Yeah. I mean, life wasn't anything great, even in the UK at that time. No, sure. Rationing and everything. Yeah. Um, but I suppose you get sort of nice. On the other hand, of course, that there weren't any. I don't think any air raids or anything like that. They'd stopped all that, but it was quite bleak. And the weather was bad. It wasn't as bad in England as it was in Germany. Mm. But do you think there was a sort of was there a sense of everyone getting really, really fed up? You know, the Germans are beaten, but they're not beaten. If you see what I mean, I mean, you know, they're just still. You know, why are you still fighting when you when you when it's over? You know, just put up the white flag. Yes, they weren't about to do that. No, I know, but it's it's so it. Yes, I mean, it must be incredibly. Frustrating. In some ways, progress seemed very slow. Right. Yeah. Did it? And it and it was in a way because they fought very hard and going on into in, uh, into Germany after the Rhine crossing, they kept on having sort of small positions with an anti-tank gun and that kind of thing yes. and holding us up. Right. Perhaps for just hours. Yes. But it was, and then of course the, the next final battle from our point of view was Bremen. Right. And that was quite a big do. Well, can we just <coughs> can we just rewind a little bit? You were saying that sort of February, March up to the Rhine crossing was was pretty sticky and and, and well, pretty February. tough. Was it? I mean, can you remember taking individual towns and villages? Or was it? Was it just sort of? It was not one big action, was it? It was just lots of, sort of little sort of. Well, February of was veritable, wasn't it? Yes, of course. Yes, yes, it was, wasn't it? That was that was something like eight divisions. Yeah, no, that was a big operation. You're absolutely right. Um, but I mean, can you remember taking part in that? Oh yes, that was pretty hairy. Was it? Yes. It was, I think the Canadian Corps were running it, headquarters was running it, if I remember. Um, I think the general was called Simmons. Yeah. Young chap, he's only about 43 or 4 at the time. Yes. And fighting through places like Goch and Geilenkirchen. Yeah. And the Germans was, fought very hard. And there were quite a lot of casualties. And terrible destruction. Of, yeah, of course. All, all those towns were more or less wiped away. What, I mean, do, can you remember sort of coming into contact with German civilians? And I mean, what was the, yes. what was the reaction when you actually... Because obviously when you go into a Belgian town or a Dutch town, everyone's sort of coming out and cheering you, giving you flowers and things. But, but in Germany, presumably a slightly different, a different mood. Yes, I suppose it was. I was try, trying to get, so to get the time timetable right. We were still at that stage. We were still west of the Rhine. Yeah. In, in the Rhineland. Um... The Germans didn't, they, as far as I remember, there wasn't much in the way of sort of sabotage, really. They were just no. relaxed, well, not relaxed, but just neutral, as it were, right. civilians. Right. They had a terrible time, they hadn't all been bombed. And then one of the things that happened was the band came out, our, band, our regimental band. Right. They were, they, some of the bands were taken around during the sort of gap for the Rhine crossing. Um, and the band got bombed. To everybody's amusement. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Why? Because you sort of think they're all a bit. No, well, they, they hadn't come for that. Right. <laughs> but they got we, see what, we were see attacked, what you we were attacked in the with. air, rather unusually. We were attacked in the air near Goch, and the band were playing out in the open, and they, they moved away pretty smartly. <laughs> <laughs> I bet they did. <laughs> but when you say we sort of, you know, it's pretty hairy at times, I mean, what, 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 what do you, I mean, Shelling, mortaring, that yes, kind of thing. Yes, oh yes, yes. And lots I of mean, it. Yes, fierce, fierce fighting. Yeah, yeah. And what are you doing at that stage? Are you, are you in your your scout car, or are you in a back in the Sherman for this? Well, I was I, when I <clears throat> travelled. I travelled in a scout car, but I was apart from trying to keep the communications going. 
I was also sort of duty officer in RHQ. Right. And the communications back to brigade and all that sort of thing. I was more or less in charge of. Who was regimental commander at that point? Sim Feathersham. And was he a good chap? He was remarkable. <laughs> he was extremely brave. He was a good tactician. He had a good eye for country. He had silk pyjamas. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, he was regarded in some ways as a sort of joke. But he was no joke. I mean, he was quite... Why was he considered a joke? In what way? Well, he had a... He, had a, he was carefully looked after by his crew. I don't know quite why he did. He was sort of dilettante in a way. Right. How old would he have been then? Sort of still in his 30s? No, I think sort of forty-ish. Right. He he came to us. He was a yeoman. He was a Yorkshire yeoman. Um, and he he they moved some one or two of the yeomanry officers into regular regiments, mm. and we got two, I think, two or three, and he was one of them. And he came as second in command. And then when the commanding officer was in the lead at home, which was in September forty-four, he took over command and stayed until the end of the war. And, and you liked him personally? Oh, yes, he was very amusing. Um, and very nice and, and, and able. I mean, he was, he was good at what he was doing. Mm. He had a French sergeant in charge of his tank, and they got on it very well. It was curious. How come? I mean, how come you had a Frenchman there? Well, he just happened to be French, I think. I mean, he was naturalised English, I think, probably. Oh, I see what you mean. Right, OK. But he... I mean, was there sort of... You know, in, in between it all, we, I mean, was the kind of sort of regimental headquarters a, a kind of, could it be quite a sort of convivial place to be? Some of the time. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> once once Venetable was over, well, then, then of course, after that, there was fighting up to the Rhine. Right. And well, again, it's just pushing through. And pushing through. And again, the Germans were still fighting quite hard. Mm. Those, those that were left east of the river, west of the river. Um... And then the Rhine crossing, I think, was the 23rd of March. Um, and we went over, they, they built a bridge quite quickly. Mm-hmm. A belly bridge. Um, and I think we must have crossed about two or three days right. into, the, into the battle. Um, and you just went over on that, was it a sort of a pontoon bridge or was it a, I can't yes, remember, yes, yeah, it was, no, wasn't it? The river was pretty wide at that point. Was there a sense of sort of, you know, now we're over the Rhine, this is the the final furlong, or, or was it just, I expect we're going to get more of the same? No, I think I think people thought it was a real landmark, and probably it wouldn't be too bad. It wasn't anything like as bad after that. I mean, they they resisted. Right. Um, considering they must have known it was all over. Yeah. It was amazing how much they resisted right up to the very end. Right. They fought fairly hard for Bremen. Yes. Yeah, so then you, then you, so then you were sort of swinging northwards yes, a little bit. Yes. With with sort of stops on the way for anti-tank guns and yep. things like that, but no major difficulties until until Bremen. And then Bremen itself, I suppose, took I can't remember a week or something. Yeah. They captured. Yeah. And then we went on up to. Um, North of Bremen, Bremen, Bremen Vorda, which is a bit up towards Denmark. And was there when the war stopped on the 8th of May.
You'd heard that Hitler had killed himself, and you remember that? Yes, I think we heard that. I can't remember when it was. It must have been just before that. What, what was yeah. the date of that? 30th of April. Yes. Yeah. So what, what, was the, what were the overriding emotions? I mean, one of sort of relief? Yes, of, of, I think of so. Just sort of, I've made it. Yeah, yeah. It's all over. We didn't stay there very long. We, we were then distributed around what became the British zone. Mm. Um, and we went to Hanover and stayed there for most of the summer. And that must have been all right, wasn't it? And that was fine. Hanover was uh, been more or less demolished. I mean, the the, uh, I mean, the levels of destruction were just extraordinary. Oh they? yes, yes, it was absolutely amazing. I mean, Hanover, the, the buildings were all in the streets, more or less. I mean, quite a number of buildings were still standing, but they were all damaged. But but they, many, most of them had fallen down, had been knocked down into the streets. And the trams were all out of order, and that's all. Really... But the Germans got it going again extraordinarily quickly. And it's remarkable, isn't it? I mean, the trams were running quite soon. Well, I can't remember how long, a matter of weeks. Right, so during the summer you were there? So we were there. Just, that was fine. It was very relaxed. Mm-hmm. Um, and they started up the opera again, mm-hmm. which was very good. <laughs> we, were, we were in, in Herrenhausen, right. which is the, was the old uh, elector's palace. Right. And all sorts of things going on. I mean, sports of various kinds. Um, it was a very relaxed summer. So, I mean, I mean, obviously, you, you, you faced a fair few battles in your time between sort of landing on D-Day and, and through to the end of the war. I mean, 11 months of, of fighting, really, with a couple of weeks back at home in January. Yeah, yes. But, I mean, you must have had some... I mean, did you have some pretty close shaves along the way? Have you had moments where you look back and you think, gosh, I'm lucky to get through that one? Well, in my case, really, only through shelling. Right. Which... which on and off all the time. Well, not all the time, but quite a lot of the time. You see, the, there was no, hardly any air attacks. Right. Which was, which was unusual in that kind of war, because the Germans, I mean, we had complete air superiority. Mm. I imagine in other, other battles that would have been worse. And yeah, presumably, you, I mean, seeing typhoons and so on flying overhead, I mean, that yes. was quite a common sight. That was reassuring. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But was there a technique for shelling? I mean, do you do you just sort of duck your head down in the in the in the scout car, or do you run to a yes, well, ditch you, or yes, what? You, yes, I mean, you, you, we slept under the tanks some of the time, mm. not so much latterly, but earlier on. Yes, and you, I suppose when 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 you, you would hear the shell coming, yeah, and you would you know lie down or whatever, whatever. Hope for the best. Procedure was, or jump into a trench or yeah. something. That's but do you think you do get sort of hardened to it? In a way, you do. But I, I, I always thought that in the war, from the point of view of being frightened, you got more frightened rather than less. Right. Because you began to realise what it was all about. I mean, most, most of us that have been in action before. Right. And, and the beginning of the thing on, on D-Day, it was, it was interesting. Right. It stopped being particularly interesting. Quite quickly, I'm sure. I'm Quite sure. quickly, it became more... You know, dangerous so to be. Of course, in RHQ it was rather different, but even so, well, there was some chilling most most of the time when when you were in action. I presume the noise must have just been immense, wasn't it? Oh yes, all yeah. the time. That's yes. sort of yes. constant sound and noise of yes. battle. Yes, so-called moaning minutes, noble vaffers, the most ghastly noise. Yeah, um, and of course, when the Germans did attack, they had the aeroplanes. Diving aeroplanes made out of a noise too. Mm. 
And did you did you learn to sort of differentiate different types of German troops? I mean, did you kind of think differently about Waffen SS compared to Volkssturm and that sort of thing, or, or were they just collectively the enemy? Well, they were collectively the enemy, but one knew that some of them were a bit more hardened, more efficient than the others, a bit more fanatical. I <laughs> yes, yes. And what about sort of people with jumping out of hedges with Panzerfausts and things like that? I mean, was that was that an issue or? You remember? Well, in the Bocage, of course, uh, I mean, you had to shoot your way through every field. Yes. Back in Normandy, yeah. Yeah. That was less bad later on, because it wasn't such a country. I mean, Holland and Belgium were very mm. open and flat. And that didn't arise. And how do you cope with, with sort of fatigue? Because it, it must be incredibly exhausting, all this. I mean, it's operating that kind of, sort of high, heightened state all the time. I mean, is that, is that where being a young man just helps, or...? Were there times where, I mean, you're not you're not in the line all the time, are you? Oh, no, you know, no. you are sort of rotated. But yes, are you able to get enough rest? Do you think, or is it all right? By come eighth of May, nineteen forty-five. I mean, are you just absolutely exhausted? No, I think well, by I think by then, I'm a bit, you got used to it in a way. Right. So you do come sort of battle hardened. Yes. Yes, I think so. Yeah. You might get a different story from the tank crews, but I th- yes, I think they did. But of course, it, it, in the winter, when there was when these fierce battles, the days were pretty short. Yes. Um, so there was sometimes once you refueled and rearmed in the uh, in the evening, you could call it a day. Probably a matter of hours before you were going again. Right. In the summer, when the winter, when the night was only what three or four hours long, mm. then it was rather. Yeah, I can imagine. And what did you think about all your kit and, you know, from uniforms all the way down to small arms to the bigger stuff like tanks and scout cars? I mean, did you think you were well serviced? Yes, I think I think we probably did. Um, the tanks were in. I mean, everybody knew that in some ways the Shermans were inferior to Mark IVs. But they but, had certain advantages. But they had advantages. I mean, they were very fast, they were very quick, very reliable. And when we got a 17 pounder into the thing, it became a pretty effective weapon. Quick rate the of fire as well? The 75 was a brilliant HE weapon, but not the world's greatest anti tank gun. Yeah. But then you had lots of anti tank guns to support you, didn't you? And we had massive artillery, of course. Yeah. And that must have been reassuring as well, well wasn't it? Yes. To know that you've got this immense firepower behind yes. you. I mean, uh, incredible firepower, really. Mm. Thousand guns. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, and every, every infantry division was supported by something like 110 anti-tank guns. Yes. You know, that's a heck of a lot, isn't it, for a division, yeah. single division? Yeah. Yes. And I mean, the fire spot was, was extraordinary. And the field artillery, too, was... First yeah, class. numerous. And good. And very, and very good, Yes. And our, our links with the gunners as an armoured regiment were very close. Yes. So that's really they interesting. Were, they were almost sort of part of the deal. Yeah. And we used the gunner communications some of the time. Right. So there really is a sort of sense of all arms cooperation. Yes, yes. Particularly, yes. And, of course, we were with the 43rd Division a great deal of the time. We got to know them extremely well. Yeah. And 50 Div, which eventually was disbanded. Yeah. And I think a lot of 50 Div went into 43rd Wessex Division, didn't they? Yes, well, that was what the one we were mainly with. That was yeah. on Tomar. Mm. Um, they, they had quite a pasting. Yeah, I mean, casualties in the infantry units is just absolutely extraordinary. I mean, yes. Yeah. Terrible, really. I mean, we were with them for our main battle out of a small parcel with the 43rd Division. 
and they had quite time of that. I mean, it's interesting that, that you know, what, what I find just sort of fascinating is, you know, when you sort of look at British Second Army, I think 43% of that army was service troops. And I think... Yes, uh, I think that's right. And yeah. I think something like 7% are in armour. Yes. And 14% are infantry. And had a lot of gunners too. Yeah, I think that was like 22% in the <laughs> artillery, 18% engineers. I, I, yeah, yeah. Give, I mean, I may be a, a point off, but I mean, it's that sort yes. of figure. And, that, and actually, I mean, what that tells you is that's actually quite an efficient way from 1940s standards of fighting a war. I mean, yes. you want to keep those at the coalface of war to an absolute minimum. Yes. But if you're unfortunate enough to be in that yeah. coalface, you know, obviously you're, you're going to have a pretty torrid time. Yes. You know, particularly if you're in tanks or particularly if you're in... I mean, casualties in 13th, 18th of must have been pretty horrendous, weren't they? They weren't as bad as, the, as they'd expected. Right. Right from the start, really. I mean, they expected major casualties on D-Day, which, yeah. we, which we didn't get. I mean, there were, yes, was, the infantry course had far more than we did. Mm, proportionally. But, I mean, it's just, you know, it's... Um, I mean, obviously not every single one of those casualties is is a is a man who's been killed by an Israeli no, imagination. No. But, but, you know, it's just that rolling through of yes. personnel all the time. Yes. It sort of never stops. You've yes. constantly got people going out, people coming in. You know, it's yes. just... Um, it's uh, really, me- really attritional, wasn't the it? The medical services were extremely good. Yes. And British, Canadian and Americans put a huge amount of effort into yes. making sure they were for... Yes. for Morale reasons, but also for practical reasons, for yes. hard, pragmatic reasons. Yes. I don't think the Americans are getting one in four battle casualties back onto the battlefield within three months or something. I mean, you know, that's, that's no. really going some by like, yeah. 44, 45 standards. Yes. You know, did, did tempers fray or did, did you, did, was morale pretty okay in the 13th, 18th Fazars? I mean, I know it's sort of hard to kind of pin that down, but... but I think know, morale is so important in a civilian army, uh, isn't it? Yes, I think it probably was quite good on the whole. Um, I mean, you all kept going, obviously. Yes. No, I think on the whole it was OK. What it was like in the infantry, I'm not sure. They had a worse time in some ways. Of course, on the other hand, the infantry wouldn't be in a tank for love or money. I mean, they said, oh, you can't be shut in like that. Yeah. The tank people said, well, we're not going to be outside on our feet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just a question of what you're told to do. Yes, but also, I suppose it's a, a little bit tribal, isn't it? Yes, you know, you're, you know yes. that's your lot, yeah. so you're going to make yeah. the best of it, yeah. aren't you, to yeah. a certain extent? Yes. But I, I, it must have been a, a, incredible to witness that level of destruction in Germany as well, to just see that and to see what, yes, it was what the war had generated. Well, the two really striking things about that were, were Berlin and Hamburg. Mm. Hamburg had a firestorm. Yeah, in, back in July forty three, the middle city just disappeared. Really. Yeah, it's just incredible. I mean, it was all just like you know, updraft. And uh, you remember going through Hamburg? Can you? I Did you visit going to Hamburg you, afterwards? Yeah. Yes, we never got as far. We didn't get to Hamburg in the war because we were stopped at Bremen. No, sure. Um, but I went that very soon afterwards. And Berlin. Almost every building was damaged. Right. In some way. Mm. I mean, some had just disappeared. Some were just windows and some were, you know, just knocked about. Yeah. But almost every building was damaged, as far as one could see. Um, it's amazing, really. Even even on the edge, even out in sort of Spandau and places like that, there was a hell of a lot of damage. Yeah. But it had been bombed to destruction. I mean, it is interesting, isn't it? Because, you, I mean, you know, why, why most countries give up 
in a war is because they've run out of money and they're not going to win. You know, I mean, that's yeah. why Germany goes for an armistice in November 1918. Yeah. You know, by that reckoning, I mean, you know, November 1941, maybe, you know, the Germans <laughs> have kind of, you know, I mean, they're just not going to win from that point because, you know, how long the war is going to go on for and what pattern it's going to take is up for grabs. But, but the outcome, really, you know, because... Germany's USP is, you know, it's, it's kind of sort of modus operandi is to kind of win its wars very, very quickly yeah. because it doesn't have those resources. So the moment you drag Germany into a long attritional war, you know, very high chance it's going to lose. Yeah. And yet they just keep going. I mean, it's just extraordinary, yes. isn't it? And, yeah. and, you know, I mean, and you know, German to- defenders of the, you know, they say, well, you know, you accuse us of a holocaust but but you created a holocaust by bombing all the cities and of course the difference is is that the moment they stop the war we'll stop the bombing whereas yeah. you know the holocaust it would just got worse if germany had won yes um and germans have several disadvantages i mean air inferiority mm. shortage of fuel yeah massive shortage of fuel shortage of transport yep masses of horses yeah so what are they doing fighting a war against this sort of, you know, ultra-mechanised, yeah. industrialised Western nations? And the Soviet Union, I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Crazy. But is it, isn't it incredible how quickly it's all sprung back up to life again? I mean, yeah. I don't know when you were last in Berlin, but I mean, it's the most extraordinary place to visit now. I, I, I well, went there almost every year after the war, for one reason or another, for quite a long time. I mean, I, the last time I was there, I suppose, was... I can't remember. Mm. 25 years, at least, probably more than that. Time right. passes very quickly. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's 42 years since I left the army. Is it really? <laughs> yeah. But you had a long and very distinguished career in the army after the war and well, rose to become a general. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, you know, do I mean, when you think back on the Second World War now, I mean, how, how do you... Do, do you have any sort of thoughts about it? 75, 80 years on, I mean, it's... it's. Do, do you think it is important that we still study it, we still remember it? I mean, you know, in a... In a yes, I think it is. I think it is. I don't, whether, whether, I don't think anything like, like that will probably happen again, I and mean, one doesn't know. But it'd be a mistake to forget about it. Yeah. Well, thank you, that was... It's been wonderful to make you kind of dig deep into the past and <laughs> talk about all that. I mean, what an amazing career you've had, though, and um, extraordinary to have gone through all that time from D-Day all the way through to the very end of the war and beyond. So thank you. Thank you.